0: Hello again, food enthusiasts. My name is Chris Rochkowski, your host again today for the Future Foodcast, where we talk to thought leaders in today's food industry and discuss the trends and technologies that will shape the future of food. Very excited today to be speaking with Amalia Moreno-Domgaard, founder, CEO, chef entrepreneur, and award-winning author um, leading the business, Amalia Latin Food Gourmet. Welcome to the program today.
1: Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, you've got a wonderful setting there. I was complimenting you and being jealous uh, before we started this recording that you've just got the perfect set for our program. And uh, maybe I, I need to do the same in, in my studio here.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much. This is my my sanctuary. This is where I spend a lot of time.
0: Excellent. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about what brought you up to being in this sanctuary and all the work you're doing today maybe introduce sort of your background uh, to the audience and what how did you start becoming passionate about food and you know going back to wherever the beginning of that was up to when you started your current business activities
1: Yes, I was uh, born and raised in, uh, in Guatemala City and at a very early age my parents got divorced and I ended up living with my maternal grandmother in a, a remote part of Guatemala in a town called in the department of Chiquimola which is uh, closest to the border uh, with uh, El Salvador. My grandmother was an entrepreneur and also a good cook. I used to go with her to the markets. I used to help her in the kitchen and I observed a lot. So I think I absorbed a lot as well and I didn't know how much really I, I learned from her until I moved to the U.S. So when I came to the U.S., I started an international banking career in Kansas City, and that was uh, a good thing because that is where my strong business uh, core comes from uh, to start my business. During my time in international banking, my first career, I had already developed an affinity and a passion for cooking and learning more about food. So I had this curiosity, I think, uh, all the time since I was uh, very little, but uh, when my son was born, I decided to switch uh, careers and I started teaching and uh, then I started forming the idea of having a business and at that time I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do, so teaching seemed very natural to me and when you teach, you are more inclined to do research because you know, you want to share about your background, you want to share your knowledge, but also you want to stay up to speed with uh, what's going on in, in the food industry. At that time, I also felt that someday I wanted to, to write my first book. And when I was done with my first book, I said, well, I still have a lot of material that I want to share, but the book is already 436 pages long. It had taken me four and a half years about to compile, traveling and and doing the research, testing recipes, writing uh, food anecdotes, uh, writing culture, writing about um, history. And so I said, well, I better save this uh, other material for for my next book. And that was a good thing because that gave me time to really reflect and, and analyze, well, The first book was a very good idea because there wasn't a book like that in the US, in in English, uh, written from a uh, Guatemalan a professional chef from a native's perspective and someone that you know has lived in the culture and really really appreciates it. So this gave me the, the opportunity to bring Guatemalan cuisine to, to the forefront and, and to tell the world in my own words about Guatemalan cuisine. But then as time went on I said information that I want to share is beyond Guatemalan cuisine. Why? Because we don't live in a vacuum. We are connected in in some way to other people people. people and to other uh, cuisines and the proximity of the Central America region and Mexico gave me the idea that I needed to write again and continue my my writing from the first book about Guatemalan cuisine, but this time connected to the region. Why? Because this region called Mesoamerica has been a very important region and not much has been written Mm. from a food standpoint, food and culture. Lots of research still being done around archaeology, anthropology, all connected to this field, but not much about Mm -hmm. how important it is from a food standpoint, because it's a center of agriculture, it's a center of origin, and it's the center where major civilizations once lived, Mm -hmm. and their descendants are still there today who practice many of uh, the food traditions and food ways uh, that these early peoples uh, had. But also, you know, there was another opportunity to expand into the Central America region because there were other uh, tribes, civilizations there, early peoples that also interacted with the major civilizations. And when I say major, I'm talking about the Olmecs, I'm talking about the Aztecs, the Mayas. There were other groups there in the Central America region also that, that played a role with the how the cuisine is there today and why it is the way it is. So these groups traveled north, North, South, and they they exchanged information. They exchanged uh, ingredients. They exchanged ideas, but also along the way. Uh, the ideas that were travelling in this area were in the, in the in the way of recipes perhaps early recipes so and, and so this takes me to to the connection and the interrelation of all these cultures as to why the cuisines are similar yet distinctive and that boils down to you know the staples of the region being a center of agriculture corn beans and squash You know, those are staples in the Native American culture as well, and beyond that, there's tomatoes, there is uh, chilies, there there are many other commonalities, but corn is a central part of Mm -hmm. our culture and our diet and that is true today it for the latin american region not necessarily the mesoamerica region but using just corn as as an example you know we can go from from country to country from south central mexico which is part of the mesoamerica region to uh, belize guatemala el salvador honduras uh, nicaragua costa rica and panama you're going to find a corn recipe in, in in more than than one way more than tortillas, in more than in more than soups, more than drink. And, and some of those are, are similar yet different because the, the different cultures that live in these countries have adapt, adapted them to what's available locally, to what grows there naturally locally and so on. So this is a very important region uh, because it's deeply historical, it's ancient, not much is known about it yet, but as a center of agriculture, there are some 104 uh, native species, uh, those are edible uh, that have been identified in this area so far. And I say identified. There might be more out there yeah. because research continues. And out of these 104 native species, about 50% of those are in my home country, Guatemala. Guatemala. Guatemala is a fairly small country in comparison to Mexico, but it is very, very rich in culture in agriculture. And the core of it is uh, the Mayan civilization. Mm -hmm. And so this creates wonderful environment for, you know, connecting food to culture, history, and and vice versa, because Mm -hmm. they are interrelated. Right.
0: Well, it's a great background, an amazing background, of course. and one of the trends I definitely see that you represent is people with really successful, often global careers that uh, shift into their passion, which is then the food space in, in all sorts of different ways, of course. So it's excellent to see those business skills brought into you know the food space. But another thing that seems a little bit special for what you're doing is It's not only the focus on food and bringing new food to a new region, but really bringing the culture with it. And I think those of us that have been fortunate to travel internationally and spend significant time in places where we weren't, where we didn't grow up, really start to deeply understand how intertwined food and culture is. And frankly, it's hard from an American point of view I think, because a lot of Americans don't get the opportunity to travel outside the U.S. very much. Tell us more about how you're helping to basically bring culture along with the food in your in your books and also in the work that you do with Amalia Latin Gourmet.
1: So the idea of bringing food culture with home style cooking, uh, healthy eating, and injecting modern uh, techniques, cooking techniques uh, that is into an ancient cuisine that still has very many techniques that are still in use today. As an example, there are uh, tools that are made of volcanic rock used to grind, uh, used to uh, puree ingredients, and I call those uh, the ancient blenders because, you know, our mother blender uh, really replaced, in, in a way, uh, some of these ancient tools, although they're still there in the remote parts of, of every country, especially in the Mesoamerica region. So. Connecting culture to food for me is important because I have to tell you a story every time I prepare a dish. I have to tell you a story every time I demonstrate a dish. Why? Because I think it's important for people to know the origin, but it's important for people also to learn about new ingredients. You know, with uh, immigration, with increase in uh, the Latino demographic here in in the U.S. that has been a minority for quite some time and and continues to grow. The diversity within the Latino community also continues to grow. And so we are very diverse. We are Latinos, but we come from different countries and we are all very proud of our nationalities. So, you know, we are sort of put it to this Latino label uh, but within the label, there are 21 countries here uh, that encompass uh, Latin America. And as a voice of culture in, in Guatemala and in the Central America region, I think it's important to vocalize why the food is the way it is. It's important to tell the stories from uh, the perspective of, of the natives, from the perspective of, of the cooks. Why? it makes it more interesting uh, for mm-hmm. me I mean, and I hope that it makes it more interesting for other people as well. But every time I give a presentation, a cooking demonstration, I sense that people like that. I sense that people hunger for for information more so today than they did maybe 20 years ago. Not that people were not interested before. I feel that there's a movement now in terms of uh, interest, about other cultures, about diversity, and also about expanding upon our knowledge that you know, there is beyond so many cuisines that have been mainstream here in the U.S. Oh, there is a a bigger world out there. Mm. So this is bringing all this interest in in more diversity and with more diversity come new foods and then new ethnicities, right, that are now narrating. They are now sharing more about their, their foods and their places of origin, but I think that food is also an opportunity to connect people at the table. You know, you can discuss anything under the sun when you sit at the table and you share uh, about your own culture. It is also an opportunity to practice inclusivity because, you know, you can have a table full of different Latin American nationalities, but you could also have different people from different parts of of the country, in the U.S., from Canada. And why not? From other parts of the world. So food is a platform for connecting, better understanding, uh, better appreciation. Why? Because it is shared in a way that it's not uh, combating. It's a matter of fact, this is the way it is, right? This is why we do the things we do. Uh, these are our customs, these are our traditions. And why is that? Well, let me think about that, right? And why is it that we do the things we do? We do you know. Many of us say, well, we've always done it this way. Yeah. But oftentimes there is a reason.
0: Yeah, and I, I certainly agree, of course, that we share food at meals and all these conversations happen. It's a great way to bring people together. On this podcast, probably more common that we're focusing on the food itself and thinking about, oh, where does it come from? What's the supply chain look like? What is the transparency and the authenticity of this food? But it's interesting the way you're approaching the food space in bringing the cultures through recipes. As you're talking, it, it strikes me that there's probably a, a great benefit to be had also in understanding, if you will, the transparency of the recipe and all the way back to the origins. You know, Like you said, people are more curious, I think, these days of understanding different cultures, different cuisines and then not just read a recipe in a book and say, oh great, I'm gonna try something from Latin America, but to really understand in a transparent way, where's that food coming from? What's the culture like? Is that something that you're, I think, maybe helping to bring to the public through your
1: books? I think so. And when I said earlier that uh, when I wrote my first book, Amalia's Guatemalan Kitchen, there wasn't a book out there about Guatemalan cuisine. And within the book, There are recipes, and within the recipes, there are ingredients that are inherent to the cuisine and ingredients that that were not known here. And there are many commonalities, but also there are new ingredients because those are native to the land. But, you know, in doing the work I do, I am also connected to different facets of the foodways of the past, of the foodways of today, of the foodways of the future, but I am also connected to all these concepts of food safety, transparency, mm-hmm. information. Why? Because people also demand to know more about mm-hmm. the sources of food. People, I think, are more mindful today about wanting to know how the food is grown. They want to be healthier. They they are more conscious about what they put into their bodies. So they want to know the origin. They want to know uh, the source. They want to know even, you know, are animals uh, treated um, fairly and and with respect and, you know, are they they grown Mm -hmm. in a way that is beneficial for us, our bodies? the environment and for the planet in general because I think that all these things are connected and food is definitely a a big big part of what's going on in the environment and there's so many books and so many videos that have been created out there about this but I am connected to many farmers here in the Twin Cities uh, who are practicing uh, sustainability, have been doing that for a while and a big movement now uh, that has been developed and gaining speed lately is uh, regenerative agriculture. And so, and these are not new concepts. These are concepts that come from past civilizations. We're trying to revive a lot of this stuff. And so, you know, a lot of this food safety, uh, transparency, information, and uh, food origins uh, is connected to farmers and it's connected to the land, right? So people, I think, are more open to asking uh, the questions uh, without hesitation, without beer, you know, what are you feeding us, right? It's a socially responsible, you know, right. company and behaviors in growing food, in dealing with farmers. Are they getting paid what they they need to be paid? Mm-hmm. And, and there's so many different things uh, that are connected to this uh, blockchain in the food system uh, concept. But, you know, I see so many benefits from this because, well, again, this is not really anything new. You know, blockchain is progressing and it's adapting to modern times. Uh, Information is being recorded more um, actively today. It's being digitalized. and so that people have more access to that information for transparency for the benefit Mm of people right and for safer food at the same time and those are things that are important to me personally they are important to me as a teacher and they're important to me when I cook at home I want to make sure that I am eating healthy foods and I am putting the best products into my body in terms of Health.
0: Right. Sustainability means different things to different people. And no, there's no, certainly there's no one opinion that is right or better. Um, oh, absolutely. But I see this a lot also in, in the many entrepreneurs we're talking to, and that there's really such a focus on sustainability. But at the same time, I think especially those that are people who are selling food products, the key determining factors on a purchase still come down to taste and cost. But increasingly, anecdotally, through people feeling like there's more focus on purchasing decisions being made on sustainable practices, but you know, also real data that shows that people are moving in that direction. What do you see in the next few years? How much do you think people's impression of sustainability in a food product is going to sway their purchasing decision? Whether their view is on sustainability of living wages, organic, um, regenerative farming, or even packaging waste reduction, how much do you think that's going to play a role in the individual's purchasing decisions?
1: I think that, you know, the younger generations are different from us. And I hear often, I talk to them and I have a younger son who is part of that generation and they are more conscious about the environment. I mean, we've always been conscious about the environment, but how much attention did we really pay to the impact of uh, farming and agriculture on the environment? How much attention did we pay to the fact that you know we're buying a product that is at a good price but it tastes good and how much do we care beyond that i think that today there is more consciousness about questioning a little bit more about what that product comes from you know as an example i can pick up a bag of coffee and you know i can talk about coffee until I'm blue in the face because coffee is grown in Guatemala and in, it's grown in uh, other uh, Latin American countries. But what I hear often is that, you know, the farmers are, are growing the coffee. It's backbreaking work, labor, and that, you know, they're selling, they're exporting this coffee and they're not really benefiting that much from, from that. So I think that today there's more conscious about, especially here in Minnesota, I think that we, we have so many nonprofits and we have so many organizations that are socially responsible that are looking at those issues. This is a bag of coffee. By the way, the packaging looks beautiful, very attractive. You know, the coffee tastes delicious because you know it came from the best growing regions in the world. But then who grew this coffee? Mm-hmm. and who are these people and how much do we know about them, right. you know, what are their conditions, their socioeconomic conditions. I think those questions are asked more today than, mm-hmm. than in the past. Why? Yeah. Because there's more information out there, you know you tell someone something and they are not quite sure that they believe you, they'll immediately yeah. go to Google <laughs> Whether, exactly. you know Google is the, the best place to go because there is a lot of misinformation there. Yeah. Um, but what I'm saying is that there is more information available today uh, than there was, you know, 10, 15 years, 20 years ago. After all, the Internet is a fairly new platform. And so and before that, there was information but the information now is available at our fingertips exactly. so i think all this is driving a more consciousness and of course there's advocacy out there from the groups that i mentioned non-profits that are that are demanding more transparency about how these products are grown mm-hmm. you know, we want to benefit the farmers you know mm-hmm. because they are the ones really originating and doing a lot of this work
0: right as you're also describing as technology has evolved it makes this transparency easier. What might have taken literally months 20 years ago might take literally seconds today. Um, you know, following your comment on coffee, I actually bought a bag of coffee recently just because it had a QR code on it. It was advertising that I could find out you know origins of this and it, the blockchain. Yeah, so it did bring some of that. It's it's at the beginning phases, but with as you said, using blockchain to help develop trust um, in the supply chain. Um, allowing people to look back through the supply chain and potentially see who is actually growing this coffee and then having trust in that. And the trust, frankly, doesn't come from a blockchain. The blockchain and the technology is a tool for um, another word that's very popular these days, authentic entrepreneurs, people that are trusted, that come through in the product. I'm curious, as this technology is becoming more available and more easy for companies to use, let's say a, a consumer is able to buy a product and look back on the supply, through the supply chain, say through a QR code with their smartphone and find where it comes from halfway around the world. And they're able to possibly even connect with those individuals. Do You foresee somehow that possibly changing the economics of the supply chain. And frankly, it, it becomes possible for the final consumer to potentially impact the economics of those farmers through all sorts of mechanisms at that point. Do you see that as a possibility that might happen?
1: I sure hope so, because I want those farmers who are doing all the work to benefit more than they are right now. I think that we are still learning about this. I think it's brilliant to have QR codes of products, and you know, QR codes have sort of come back. They are nothing new, but we are finding new ways to use them. But what a great way to, to use a QR code to give uh, the consumer more information about the traceability of a product. I will certainly expect that this has greater benefit. And I think that when people really truly understand how the product moves, and then if they are comfortable with the origins and the way that the product has moved through the, through the supply chain, they're feeling more, more connected to that in the way that they feel that if they see that there's something uh, that is not right, uh, they can potentially impact that directly. So th- there's different kinds of movements out there, as you know, about food. And I see people uh, being more, more vocal, more active. So I am hoping that this benefits everyone in terms of making food information more, more accessible that enables the consumer to make better decisions about their purchase, but also that allows companies that buy products that are made in other countries more responsible. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to dig a little bit more into this topic because you have a particularly, I would say, applicable background and experience set to, I think, give a very uh, expert opinion on this. So you have a background of living in North America, living in the US right now. You grew up in Guatemala. So you and you go back relatively often so you understand both ends of potential supply chains for example coffee at the same time you are a qualified finance expert you are coming from as an executive so essentially you understand how money works and you understand how money works in the us and how it works in guatemala let's say there is a scenario where a consumer can pick up a bag of coffee they can buy it but at the same time Maybe they can send a dollar to the farmer. Sometimes good intentions go wrong. As uh, the saying goes, uh, all the best uh, efforts you know, can lead to an unexpected result sometimes. Mm-hmm. What's your view on if that is possible? Do you think that that consumer should they be able to send a dollar to the farmer, a dollar to a co-op, a dollar to an aid agency? dollar to the company that sold the coffee that would be distributed back to farmer or those agencies. What do you think would be the most useful application of that sudden flow of money that didn't exist before?
1: Well, I would say that the closest to the source would be the best. So if if it can go directly to the farmer, <laughs> (laughs) bingo but oftentimes that may not necessarily happen that way for different reasons Uh, but if that farmer for example is part of a cooperative so that will be the shortest distance between the cooperative to the farmer and if there is transparency if we know for sure that the profits are being distributed or that the uh, money is distributed uh, equally that would be the best case scenario as the supply chain grows larger you know those uh the pie gets smaller especially for the farmer right right so the, the closest that you can get to the source of the product if someone is exporting something and they are exporting directly, whether it's to other countries or within the country, right? They get paid directly. That benefits that company, that farmer directly.
0: Absolutely. And again, with the decentralization that we're seeing in technology today, as evidenced in blockchain, digital identities that are decentralized, that are very robust for identifying a person electronically and not you don't have to have a passport or something like that, we're really at a point where there can be that trust and there can be that transparency. But again, the technology doesn't make it happen. It has to be the people that make it happen. And maybe one of the good sides of the bad results of social media these days where things have kind of, the wheels have come off a bit on social media with all the problems there. People are skeptical, and and there is a lack of trust. I think they do want to trust, and and that's where the the face comes in. You know, being able to trust that person, you can often see through a genuine person and somebody who's basically just there for marketing purposes. I think that input that you have on getting as close to the producer as possible is is very important, but also making sure that it is actually any benefits to the farmers are distributed properly, and there's no funny business going on, because that would immediately blow up the whole effort and potentially poison the process for years after that.
1: Yes, and that's why I mentioned if the farmers are associated with a cooperative, for example, you know, full transparency is absolutely needed, right? So those people that are skeptical can feel more comfortable. And I Mm -hmm. understand the skepticism because there is a lot going on out there that is not right. And so people have very good intentions and people do want to support farmers it's important to support farmers but if uh, there is a lack of trust with institutions organizations that are distributing products then there is a problem there right And, and that needs fixing
0: right but you know we talked about a very special case of international supply chains especially because you have expertise in this area but you also have expertise locally for me this is one of the interesting things about this type of technology is when you do it once there's a lot of hefty heavy lifting to be done. But if that was set up for the, say, a coffee supply chain from Guatemala to Twin Cities in the US, well, there, it's a relatively easy lift for regenerative farmers, you know, 20 kilometers, 20 miles outside of the Twin Cities to connect with consumers there. And those consumers can use the same technology to understand that this is an organic potato from you know, a local farmer that I actually know versus, you know, massive conglomerate farmer that, Nothing wrong with that necessarily, but maybe people want to have a choice.
1: Absolutely. You know, I I can tell you three important points. if We're talking about coffee, continuing the conversation. A, my great-grandfather had a coffee plantation. So I have seen firsthand the process of uh, growing coffee. I haven't participated because I was very little at that time. But I talked about observing my grandmother in the kitchen. I also observed my great grandfather in his farm. He had a dairy farm and a coffee plantation uh, farm, and so I saw the process of, of harvesting coffee, of drying coffee in uh, his backyard, and raking the coffee to dry the to remove the the fruit, uh, the uh, mm-hmm. the peel, and then uh, processing it even further to remove the outer skin of the coffee before it gets put into sacks and be- before it's it goes to distribution, so the coffee is green at that time. And so I remember grabbing coffee beans from the plant at times because they went from green to deeper green to red. And then I would grab them out of curiosity and put them in my mouth and try to eat it like a fruit. Curiosity, mm-hmm. what does this taste like? They were very acidic. And then I discovered that as I bit into it, it had two seeds uh, that were joined mm-hmm. together, right? And those are the the coffee beans. So actually one coffee fruit has two two pieces mm-hmm. to it, right? Yeah. So so I remember all those things. I also remember the aromas of the roasting coffee in the town. And then I vividly remember the flavor of good coffee. And and that is something that I have in, in my head, in my heart, in my tongue. And when I'm looking like anything else, when you taste a good product, a good piece of fruit that stays in your head as a reference point. Right. Right. You judge another piece of fruit that is like that is this going to be as good as the one I had? The one that I said, oh, this is really good. So coffee for me, it's that way. So I have a connection to my great grandfather, but being here in Minnesota, now I have a connection to two farmers who are growing coffee in, in Guatemala. And one of them is actually exporting coffee and connecting with various nonprofits one way. So that's a direct, right? A direct export. And that is really, really good. I want to see more of that happening, right? Yeah. And there is another one actually that lives here and who is from Guatemala as well. And is growing the coffee down there. and has been trying to figure out, you know, how do I really grow in this market? Because the U.S. is inundated with coffee houses, with, with coffee everywhere. And he's trying to figure out how to make a difference. How do I make my coffee stand out? There's no doubt the coffee is of high quality. It comes from Guatemala and it's grown in organic conditions, but I'm seeing more of this uh, movement of farmers trying to really, really jump over distributors because of the transparency, because of the issues of trust and so on, but they want to get the benefit, right? I want them to get the benefit.
0: Yeah, and I think we're on the cusp of that, of these distributed systems being easier to adopt. You know. You, you don't need a, a development team of IT experts to do it for you. It's something that can drop in. And, and in that case, these people, I think, might have a direct path to the US. Right? Who needs all the distribution if maybe um, you can package up your product on a pallet and put it on a UPS, uh, UPS flight? Basically, um, coffee outlets in your city. Um, I I think that's part of the exciting future that we're looking at. And for me, it's really interesting to see how you're bringing these truly ancient cultures and amazing food cultures together through your books, but also really helping through your advisory consulting work, working with farmers, regenerative farming, farming in in Guatemala, bringing that all together, but being open-minded about the technology and what it can do positively for the small, medium-sized
1: producers. I think that the technology is really important going forward because it's making, I think, our decision making easier because we have access to the information. It's important uh, because it's it's practical. It's important because no matter where you are in the world, you can access it, right? And it's important because we all want to have better products and healthier products. But most importantly, we want those products, as you said earlier, to taste good and to be accessible at a reasonable price. Yeah.
0: I think this has been an amazing discussion and it sounds like we've got an opportunity for even another podcast going forward. Um, A lot of things you have um, going on with both suppliers and the food situation in Guatemala, also locally for you, as well as your books. Um, I'd really love to have you back as a guest on the program again.
1: I'll be happy to come back when you invite me. Thank you very much for uh, today. I look forward to next time and uh, I take this time to wish you a merry and happy holiday season.
0: Thank you, Amalia. And I encourage our guests to uh, find her books um, published by Amalia moreno Damgar, as well as go to the website and take a look, Amalia Latin Gourmet, lots of interesting information there. And... Uh, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more next year in 2022 and happy holidays to you as well.
1: Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by farm to plate the leading food blockchain platform.
1: Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.